0: This is the Monday, November twentieth, two 2017 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor where we harmonize sweet adeline on the east side west side things ain't like before there are tears in the eyes of the regular guys oh new york ain't new york anymore
1: hello history lovers and welcome i'm your host dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, just in time for Thanksgiving in America, we set sail with the intrepid pilgrims on the Mayflower. Once aboard, we'll meet the Winslow family and gain a perspective that links the broader experience from Native Americans in the New World to intrigues back home in the Old World. The voyage of the Mayflower and her sister ship, Speedwell, led to the founding of the Plymouth Colony, a key moment in world history, but one that the people at the time couldn't have known would have ripples we'd still be talking about 500 years later. Those ill-prepared Puritans who set out from England in 1620 never set out to become legends. They just set out to survive, to practice their religion freely, and live a life that they could feel good about. I guess you could call it the pursuit of happiness. But that was a tough job with no farm animals brought along for the trip, few provisions, and nothing like grocery stores or hotels to welcome them. Pilgrim Edward Winslow had fled England and then Holland seeking that religious freedom and opportunity. Once in New England, he forged a remarkable friendship with the chief of the Wampanoag tribe, a man who's part of the legend that we know today as Thanksgiving. Tracing that early alliance and friendship with us is reviewer and broadcaster Rebecca Fraser, author of The Mayflower, The Families, The Voyage, and the Founding of America. Rebecca is the daughter of noted British historian Lady Antonia Fraser, and former president of the Bronte Society in the UK, one of the world's oldest literary societies. You can also check out Rebecca Fraser's previous book, The Story of Britain, and find her on Twitter at rfraserauthor. That last name is spelled F-R-A-S-E-R. Okay, now that we've loaded up on provisions and walked up the gangplank and waved goodbye to England, Let's join Rebecca Fraser and begin our journey on The Mayflower. I'm joined on the line by Rebecca Fraser, author of The Mayflower, The Families, The Voyage, and the Founding of America. Thank you for making the time to chat with the History Author Show.
2: Hi, thank you.
1: Let's start where your book does with its cover image. It depicts this idealized illustration of the pilgrims. They appear as if they've just arrived on shore. They look immaculate. They're all perfectly groomed. The helmets are shiny. But when reading The Mayflower, it becomes clear that you're peeling away centuries of romantic myths and legends like this one to give your readers a real picture of what happened, what their lives would have been like. So how would their real experience, their clothes, the weather, the physical appearance, the tools they have with them, everything that's here on the cover of your book that's so beautiful, how would that have compared to the reality of life at that moment when they arrive.
2: Well, it's a beautiful image. And throughout history, the pilgrims have been romanticized because they're so brave and wonderful. But it's true. Here, their collars look freshly starched, whereas, in fact, we know from William Bradford, (laughs) um, the chief historian, that everyone's clothes were damp and dirty from two months just being sort of rained on and the ocean's waves soaked into all the baggage, all the clothes. They looked well-fed, whereas their food was running out, and there'd also been a terrible epidemic on board, with too many people cooped up together. So they probably should look a lot thinner and iller, and they got scurvy. And in fact, when later settlers arrived, their clothes were so ragged that there's a record saying some looked almost naked, and newcomers were really aghast at how they looked. William Bradford remembered that... new people, when they saw their low and and poor condition, were much daunted and dismayed. And people started weeping. And so I don't want to destroy the very attractive cover. <laughs> but what's correct is to make them look uncertain, which is right. And at the same time, excited because very few of them went back to England. And I think there was great excitement about the new world, because they've been living such a really tough life in Holland, in Leiden. They were living in their minister's garden, a large largest garden, but there were 20 wooden huts which had been put up, and in the 20 huts were families. They were working 12-hour days doing work for Dutch factory owners, in effect, and Holland was a place which had Protestant refugees pouring in from all the Catholic provinces during the war against Spain. And In fact, one of the reasons the pilgrims wanted to leave Holland was that their children, William Bradford said, were growing old before their eyes because they were being forced to work by Dutch clothing manufacturers. So it's like complaints about cheap clothing today. (laughs) But the other thing I would say is I think they look like very respectable people, and that is right. One of the problems about the settlers at the time, not now... But the actual time is that the Scrooby Church, which formed the core of the pilgrims, had become outlaws as far as England was concerned because they were separatists. They wanted their own form of religion without the English monarch as head of the church. And separatism was a dirty word. So it was sort of assumed that they were outlaws and low-class people. And in fact, really, they were very cultured people who had given up everything for their religion because they thought the Church of England in the early 17th century was corrupt. So they go and live in Holland, and they are very impoverished, but they also have beautiful furniture from the past. They have lovely plates and fine glass, and in fact, wonderful napkins. And in fact, you may be delighted, you probably know this, your wife's ancestor, Mrs. Elizabeth Warren, had this enormous, beautiful damask. It's almost like a tablecloth, and it's on display in Pilgrim Hall Museum. And it has a scene from um, Amsterdam, and it's of bridges. This is the most beautiful object. So they were obviously not poor people, but they'd impoverished themselves for the sake of their religion. In a way, the illustration is true in that they were very respectable, cultured people. And and the other thing to say is that, again, because they were sort of bad-mouthed, there were books of political science on board. Two people owned translation of something called Jean Baudin's discussion of how to govern. Bradford, of course, was tremendously interested in classical writers, and he keeps comparing them to people in Plato. So in a way, the illustration is right. They were cultured, very cultured people who had given up everything for religion.
1: I like the young boy that's on the left of the picture. He just looks like it's almost a day at the beach and you can see them all looking and really get an impression of that wonder that a little bit of fear in there not knowing trepidation what's coming ahead and i think that that as you read the mayflower you realize they're confident there's so much there it really is a beautiful illustration yes i agree even if we do put some clothes on them, make them look a little more pressed
2: (laughs) no i i think they had read a huge amount about the new world i mean the New World has sort of changed everything, uh, the discovery of the New World, and it's sort of like the internet today. It just It's like an incredible change. People start to think, well, who lived there? Did they survive Noah's flood? What sort of people were in there? And there's a sort of publishing industry of travel books, and that's a big growth area at the time. And of course, people have read a great deal about the New World, so they're very excited about being there, even if they're anxious. There's been reports coming back, whether John Smith, who has been rescued by Pocahontas, and also been living in Holland, where the Dutch East India Company have just sort of discovered, in quotes, Hudson's River. So in Holland, there's been a great deal of talk about what's going to happen, you know, this discovery of America. So it's a very current thing. So they're excited to be there.
1: Well, if this is what we have to say about the cover, you can imagine all that we get as readers when we open up the Mayflower <laughs> and we look through the stories. We really get to meet them and see this fuller picture of them. For instance, just while you were talking, it made me think of this idea that that they're just in a bottle or the first ones to arrive. You were talking about how people are writing back stories or sending back stories and reports and writing books. These are not the first people to arrive. We maybe think of them that way because – of images like this where it looks like there's no one there. But <laughs> by no means are they getting there, and they're not hotels. You write in the Mayflower that some of them are shocked. Well, what did you expect? You are going to find restaurants, and you are going to find hotels and stores. They, Some of the pilgrims are saying to the others, this is really untouched. That's not why we're here. This is not no. like London was or like Holland was. But when you grow up with that, that's your whole life. You can't even picture this. Not as if there's any photographs being sent no. back, maybe some drawings, but – That hadn't been their experience before. I think maybe the closest thing we can come to it as modern people is when you have a storm like we had Superstorm Sandy here in New Jersey and New York area. You're turning the light switch on all the time. You just expect it to be on. Or if you want gas for your car, you expect to just be able to go to a gas station and get it. But it's not working.
2: And I think that. Edward Winslow, in one of his reports back to the investors in London, because they needed money from the investors before the colony gets going, they need money to be sent out to them or to buy shoes or or whatever. Equally, the investors also want people to go out and work in Plymouth and make money for them. And the pilgrims have, in particularly Edward Winslow, sends a sort of warning saying, don't expect there to be inns all over the place and the wilderness to be sort of flowing with beer. Because I think <laughs> if you were European, you had no sense really of a apparent wilderness. Although, of course, the Native Americans, to them, it wasn't a wilderness. So I think it was very, very untouched in terms of, really, other than Virginia, I mean, people had visited and had visited where the pilgrims land and for about sort of half a century, but there hadn't been settlements. There were sort of places that fishing vessels would put in further north, but there weren't Europeans living where they land. And so, of course, there aren't the things you would expect if you're a European. You would expect there to be inns, you would expect markets, all these things had to be created. You would expect to be able to buy glass. Everything has to be restarted, remanufactured. And I think it's very hard for us, as you say, as modern people, to even imagine what it's like sort of starting everything up. But at the same time, I think it's very exciting. And I think that if you were a woman, you were expected to some extent to be able to make your own medicine and to be able to make your own stores. So probably... A 17th century woman would be better equipped to make jam or make something in which you're going to keep something for the winter than, say, her 21st century equivalent. I mean, maybe, you know, if I was suddenly asked to be able to bottle things and preserve onions, I'm not sure I would do it as well (laughs) At at someone in
1: Plymouth. Yes, salt meat for the winter. Yeah, no refrigeration, so you're kind of going to salt things for the winter. We we don't know how as modern people to do that, and so much of that is something we carry over as modern readers. And I learned that here as I'm reading the Mayflower, I'm saying many of the things you would, like that light switch when the power is out just hit, simply don't exist. And they needed those skills. And even the smartest person in the world at the time wouldn't have known so many things. They wouldn't have known germ theory, for instance. There weren't vaccinations. They have to live on the Mayflower at the time because they're being attacked by some of the native tribes there that are hostile that you touch on here. You trace Edward and Elizabeth Winslow's family for two generations, two generations of one family struggling to survive. But talking about this notion of them needing to do that survival and have the tools, you write in the Mayflower, quote, all the settlers had to become linguists, traders and explorers. Now, Edward Winslow is a printer, so that's not a very valuable skill when you're trying to eke a life out of in the wilderness, maybe. It would have been better to bring a canner, maybe, or a cooper, someone who could make barrels. So what skills did Edward have to learn, and what skills did Elizabeth, his wife, bring to this journey so that they could add the new ones they needed to survive?
2: Well, I think that one of Edward's big pluses is he's really a linguist and he's very curious about the Native Americans. And he, as I said, travel literature is a big growth area. And he was in England when Pocahontas actually visits James I as the daughter of the Emperor of Virginia, and she's received with great state. So he's got a curiosity about the Native Americans, which perhaps other people are less interested in. And in the end, It's the alliance with the Wampanoags and Massasoit, which is going to save their lives. And I think there was this unique friendship between Edward and Massasoit. And travel literature, whether it's John Smith or William Strachey, published lists of vocabulary. And I think that Edward was a very educated person. He'd studied Latin and Greek And I think that one of the reasons he becomes the chief ambassador to the Wampanoags is because he's able to communicate and he wants to communicate. That's the chief thing. So was he a trapper? Well, I think as William Bradford said, after about a couple of years, he said he was so proud of all these people who had been, whether they'd been printers, weavers or tenant farmers who had turned into traders and trappers. And I think Everyone adapted once they got into the American wilderness in in an incredible way. So they rose to the challenge. But I think one of the key things about the pilgrims, which is rightly celebrated, in my view, in the Thanksgiving commemoration, is that they do have this very warm, symbiotic relationship with the Wampanoags and with Massasoit. And that has a ripple effect so that they have this tremendously cordial relationship with the native americans living far and wide and in fact john poory who was the secretary of um, virginia came and visited them visited the colony and was very very impressed by the warmth between the native americans and the pilgrims and it's a document he's not publishing it for any reason he just sort of says he sort of says i wish in virginia we could be like that so there is a unique Friendliness there, and in fact, Roger Williams, who founds Rhode Island, years later would write about encountering Native Americans in the meeting house, and they would be listening to to preachers so I think it's not a myth that the thanksgiving myth I think it's really true, and I think communication was all, and an, and an interest in the people they were surrounded with creates this wonderful relationship and in fact, when John Winthrop arrives. One, they notice, of course, that this warmth has also led to Plymouth controlling the fur trade. And Massachusetts is quite jealous of that. You know, and I think it's 1636, they say everything is controlled by Plymouth. And it's Plymouth compared to Massachusetts is a tiny little colony. It never gets very big. Between 1630, when Massachusetts is sort of founded, and 1640, 20,000 people pour into Massachusetts. But Plymouth It's always small, you know, it's sort of even 20, 30 years later, it's still about 1,100 people. But they do have a unique relationship. And so I think you ask what skills they have. Well, they are taught a lot of skills by the Native Americans. I mean, they are genuinely taught how to fertilize with shad by the famous Squanto. They are taught a lot. And also they depend on canoes coming down from the far north with all these furs because the best furs grow in the north because they grow thickest so it's a growth process but it's about open-mindedness i think so that's a skill
1: you mentioned squanto of the pawtucket tribe but in the mayflower you introduce us to many native characters one who you feel should get his due is samoset and the reason that I mentioned him and the reason I'm really smiling here as you're telling this story is something that I discussed with author David Osborne. We talked about his book, The Coming, which describes the meeting of the Nez Pierce tribe out west in America yeah. with Lewis and Clark's expedition. Oh, yeah. And I loved about his book, The Coming, as I love here about the Mayflower, people are people. There will be good settlers that come, there'll be good Europeans that come. They were just kind of another tribe then from the view of the native people. And they also have all the same prejudices of any human beings. And they have good, they have bad, they have people that are going to betray on both sides, all this kind of thing. Even here, Winslow's son does not have this relationship with the native people that his father has. And I... Really enjoy reading a book like these two books, like the Mayflower that we're talking about today, where you realize human beings are going to arrange their interrelations with other people the same way. There's always going to be differences. It's not a black and white, everyone's the same. All the Native Americans are not just this big universal, totally same homogenous culture. They're different. I love when you have a portrayal of Native people and it avoids both extremes. It's not the racist two-dimensional portrayal that we had in many books, but it's also not the condescending noble savage. We don't have any members of the tribe walking out here and doing some supernatural (laughs) thing and magically having the solution to everything. It's just Oh, okay. These are human beings. They're just Mm. different from the human beings that are arriving on the Mayflower. They arrange their Mm. culture a different way. But when it comes down to it, they're human beings. They have different nations. They have different tribes. They have different opinions and outlooks. And it gives such a rich portrayal here. It's not like it's a sci-fi book where (laughs) you... put these people on a ship, and you ship them to another planet, and they're totally isolated forever, and they meet these complete alien creatures. It's real people that have all of these interactions, and Samoset is somebody who kicks it off in a way, so talk about him for a minute.
2: Well, I think that Samoset just occasionally needs to get his due, because it's not Squanto, who is the first American Indian the Mayflower people set their eyes on after the terrible winter. It's Samoset. And it is Somerset who says, according to Edward Winslow's account, hello, English. And he tells the pilgrims about the terrible plague in 1617 in Plymouth, which the Wampanoag called Patuxet, which wipes out the population. And that means the area is empty when they arrive. And he actually comes from Maine, but he is related. he is a Wampanoag. And... You know, he spent a few days with them saying how it'd been a thriving village where they are, which is why all the land had been ploughed. But the reason there were so many graves and no Native Americans was because of the plague. And a few days after Somerset has spent time with them, and they give him food, alcohol, pudding, cheese and beer and mallard, which must be duck, as well as a horseman's coat, because the wind beginning to rise and he was naked, Squanto arrives. And the point about Squanto is really, I mean, I know he is sort of a huge, huge figure in America, but he really is an ambassador from Massasoit, who is the local king. Squanto, of course, is a key figure because he's been captured and he's actually lived in London I mean it's not to undermine his importance because he lives in London. He'd lived in London. He'd been captured by a slaving ship and that's why he speaks really good English. And he then lives with the pilgrims. I mean, Samset goes back to Maine and he teaches the pilgrims some of the American Indian agricultural methods. But really the key thing in my view is he's been sent by Massasoit and it is Massasoit's patronage, if you like, which is going to save the pilgrims in the wilderness and make sure that all the tribes who are affiliated to him or under him do not attack them. And also, as I said, his contacts are going to save the colony financially because he's part of a huge network of Native American tribes reaching to Hudson's Bay. But of course, it is now the growth of ethno-history means that we know much more about the Native American tribes than in the past. And it's actually to Massasoit's advantage to be friends with the English. And he, he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't, because the Narragansett tribe, who are really over in Rhode Island, have become his overlords because they have not been struck by the plague. It hasn't got to them yet. So, he once ruled everything, but now he has to obey them to some extent. So it's really going to be good news for him to have these English people who have guns and who have technological things that he wants. And he thinks it's going to be terrific for them. And to some extent, it is at first. So anyway, I read a lot of Roger Williams's letters. There's a two-volume edition of his letters, which are really Absolutely wonderful. I mean, Edward Winslow writes about 10 pages about the Native Americans, which are fantastic. But then it, this tradition is sort of carried on by Roger Williams, describing the relationships between Plymouth and the tribes, Rhode Island and the American Indian tribes. And they are absolutely fascinating. And all these figures emerge from that, whether it's Canonicus and the Antonymo of the Narragansetts, or indeed Massasoit himself, but of course we know much more about him from the start. But it's a very complex story, and as you say, these are people getting to know other people, and I think the open-mindedness, well, it's very impressive. I mean, why shouldn't it be? But it's still impressive to read about.
1: And it's good to get the full picture. This is Thanksgiving week here in America, as you mentioned. Canada, our neighbours to the north, had it last month, and... A lot of people want to come at the story just assume, well, there's some buckled people there. You have those little cardboard things we put on our windows when we were kids, or (laughs) I suppose you didn't do this growing up. Kids make the – they trace their hand, and they make a turkey out of it, and we have all these little things that we do. And why not slip in some of the real history here by reading the Mayflower and finding out who those people really were because – they don't set out to become legends. They just set out to live their lives, which we're all doing. And we never know when we're going to make history, what's going to happen. They get this rickety old ship. It's not as if they <laughs> are top of the line. It's not as if everybody knows, oh, wow, it's going to be the Mayflower. Yeah. Hey, let's go. It does. Yeah. To put ourselves in their buckled shoes, I don't know, did do they actually wear buckled shoes well, or is it another in, myth?
2: In the fabulous Pilgrim <laughs> Hall Museum, there are all the costumes ah. um, at Plymouth. And there is... Miles Standish's hat made out of beaver. And in fact, buckles were really very small. They are not the big buckles, you know. Uh (laughs) But it's worth paying a visit there because they have incredible, incredible stuff, which are genuine pilgrim remains. And also the Alden House in Duxbury. And of course, the Winslow House in Marshfield. So these are all historic places where there are the original materials still preserved there by dedicated historians.
1: And they think that uh, there's a barn built off the pieces of Mayflower? Do you think it is? Or what's well, the story on
2: it? This is one of these things that basically there is an indication that the Mayflower is is actually broken up for scrap in 1624. So, you know, three years later, did some scrap merchant buy it and sell it onto this barn? I don't know. It sounds pretty rickety, as you say, but maybe who knows? <laughs> who knows?
1: Yeah. Well, someday some enterprising scientist slash historian archaeologist will maybe cut open those timbers and find something in there that will tie it back to North America. It's romantic to think about. We don't mean to say that the Mayflower, your book, it strips away all the romance and all the courage as you were just talking about and all of the people meeting for the first time and having it not come down to a bayonet and and murderous bloodshed. It is a romantic story. It's great to read those in history. And when you get the Fuller story... It only adds to our understanding and our enjoyment of Thanksgiving, for example. We understand it better. And when people want to argue about it, we can have an informed discussion and talk about this narrow relationship. It's as if with the US and the UK for instance the mother country yeah. well we don't define our relationship as just the war of 1812 or just the
2: <laughs> I hope not I hope not
1: <laughs> <laughs> or just the, with Canada the great war which we're marking the centennial right now it's the US and Canada were never on the same side before which seems impossible to think we'd always fought yeah. against each other and the great war is the first time that we're allies and leads to this long undefended border so I think as easy as it is, as tempting as it is maybe to look at the history of the Mayflower as a snapshot or a a few little moments, there's so many people, so many interactions, and interactions with back home. It's not a bottle. It's not that spaceship where they ship off to the New World and they're never heard (laughs) from again, and only we (laughs) lucky few know what happened. Well,
2: I mean, I feel when in the past when I've read books about the Mayflower that I didn't feel I had a sort of context for them. And that's probably because I'm coming from England. So I'm sort of wondering, well, what about their relations back home? And I think we have to remember this is an international story. The Mayflower is sort of all part of the development of the Reformation. It's kind of coming from Luther, you know, it's sort of a 100 years on. And the Mayflower people are really canaries down the mine, if I dare to put it like that, to test whether North America, particularly New England, was safe and somewhere Puritans could flee. As the situation got in England got worse and worse as they saw it, and they believed that Charles I, and Archbishop Lord, wanted to turn England Roman Catholic. And this was a sort of anxiety. So so then in 1630, you get this clergyman, John White, saying, well, you know, they, these people at Plymouth, we don't know who they are, but they seem to have survived for 10 years. So maybe we should start going to New England. This is going to be a safe destination. They've lived happily. And then you get the beginning of Massachusetts really is coming from because Plymouth is okay, you know, that they have survived for that long. So I was very interested in the context. And I was very interested when I read that a quarter of New Englanders returned to England during or after the Civil War, because then they felt this was an okay country to be a Puritan in. So there's a lot of coming and going. And then, of course, at the Restoration, a lot of people flee back to New England. And in fact, a lot of English people hide in New England, famously Wally and Gough. They really are, they're on the run and and they are sheltered by the Boston government. So there are all these strands which I felt, if you don't have a kind of an overview and a sense of what they're fleeing from, and also English Puritans' anxiety about, are they deserting the English Reformation in England? So that John Cotton in a famous piece of writing says, Don't say that we are like mice fleeing from a crumbling house. But actually they did feel England was a crumbling house. So they were gonna make a grand new house here where they were gonna have a godly life, whereas they felt England was kind of going to the dogs. And that was a very important strand. And I think if you don't see that and sort of see why people are sitting in England thinking, Shall I come out, shall I not? I mean, for example, John Winthrop's sister, she's very tempted to stay in England. But at the same time, she feels it probably would be better for her children and her husband if they were to move. But she's fearful of the ocean journey, of what it's going to be like. Are they going to be living in very primitive conditions? Is it true there aren't any houses? And this is 1638. So there's a lot of anxiety, but also a lot of interest in the New England colonies from very well-to-do, highly educated people in England, but who feel that, they just can't countenance England becoming really high Anglican, but which to them, thought it seemed like it was on the road to Roman Catholicism. So I just thought that gave it a very interesting frame, if you like. And also the fact that the pilgrims, particularly Edward Winslow, do go backwards and forwards. And of course, his son marries into a family who Herbert Pelham does come out in 1638 lives in Boston, becomes an assistant, but then goes back to pick up a sort of huge estate in Suffolk belonging to his wife's relations. And then there's a story branching off that. So it's not like people come to Plymouth and that's it, and people don't come to Massachusetts and that's it. Then there's sort of backwards and forwards and, and letters, lots and lots of letters talking about differences. And then later on in the century, you have anxieties about, are we still English? What are we becoming? And in fact, Edward Winslow writes these wonderful letters, and he says things like, New England's becoming a nation. So he really early in about 1646, he says, New England is growing up into a nation. And I found that completely fascinating, that as early as sort of 17 years after the Mayflower, there's this sense that America is beginning and it's a nation, it's not just English settlers, and it's separate, it's very separate. And of course, He is the person who goes to England to say that there mustn't be appeals out of New England by people who aren't members of the congregational churches who want better civil rights. Because how can old England rule about England? And he gets in his lifetime, there should be no more appeals from New England sort of discontents to old England, so that there is this sense of you've got to be represented And I found all that, in a way, it's a sort of bit of a a prelude towards the great uh, American revolution of no taxation without representation. So there is a feeling about there's got to be representation even then.
1: I didn't even picture them going back and forth until I'm reading it in your book. And I'm saying, well, of course, they did get there and people did travel. But people usually do it just in a bottle. They stick them there either on the <laughs> ship or in the colony. And it's as if the whole outside world disappeared. Maybe because we read too much sci-fi and space stuff now, we tend to treat them like they're just on another planet. Yes. But they continue to live their lives.
2: Yes. Obviously, coming from England, I was sort of interested in you know what happens they come from England, they go there, they become legends. What's the truth? What about their relations back in England? I mean, do they have links? And I, I was very fascinated to find all these sort of extraordinary things so that Edward Winslow, has, we know, is what we would call a sort of, well, he's a Puritan, he's anti-monarchical, he's against the Church of England, turns out to have a brother-in-law in England who remains in England who fights for King Charles I, and Edward Winslow actually rescues a royalist nephew, and then the family invested invests money in his import export company with his son Josiah. and I was very interested in these sort of ongoing links. as you say, they're not people frozen in amber. Obviously they've got relations back in England, so I was very interested in what are the relations. It's rather like today when corporations send people far away, you know to distant countries and then they stay there for ten years, twenty years. What do they become? Do they become more like the people they're living with? Or do they sort of want to remain where they're from? And, and I find that very interesting in a world of huge international corporations. And in fact, I think the 17th century in some ways has some similarities with today in that people do leave their families and make new families. But as we know, it's a much more multinational global world.
1: As you're talking about the Mayflower and giving us this broad perspective, I'm thinking to myself that when I read novels, I love to have multiple viewpoint characters all over the world if possible. Oh. And here, for instance, chapter 13 is titled Republican England. So we get some view of what's going on there. Things don't just stay. We we don't leave that and leave it behind and say, well, nothing's happening there. They'll be able to return home again. We all know that in our lifetimes, people are going to die, people are gonna get kicked out of office, things change. Cromwell comes on the scene. This book is not tremendous. I say not tremendous because sometimes a big, thick book can intimidate readers. But you distilled it down here so that we would get that fast-paced, almost novel feeling where we could spend a few minutes over in England through somebody's eyes, a few minutes in Plymouth, a few minutes with the native tribe. So what do you hope readers get from the wider perspective?
2: Well, I just noticed in Edward Winslow's letters to John Winthrop when. John Winthrop is sort of, you know, running Boston, and Edward Winslow is in Plymouth, but um, the British, the English Revolution has happened, the Civil War has happened, um, and they've got rid of bishops, which is what all Puritans wanted to get rid of, because the ancient church did not, you know, Christchurch, and there's no mention of bishops, and reformation scholarship. This is one thing, that this is a big thing, that there were no bishops and how do we reconcile this with bishops in the Church of England? So Edward Winslow is following what's going on in England tremendously closely and he asked John Winthrop to send him newsletters and so are other people in Boston and they're all very connected to the English Revolution and uh, as I said, a lot of them went back to fight, and particularly the Rainsborough family. And I think that I wanted to show that... New England, it's founded to be a godly place. You know, the idea is there are, amongst many of the settlers, they had millenarian sort of ideas. You know, they wanted the second coming. They wanted the rule of the saints. But once bishops are got rid of in England, then there's a sort of feeling, well, is the rule of the saints not going to start in New England, but in old England? And I think that showed the underlying overarching idea of Puritans who emigrated, what they were wanting to do. They wanted to find this sort of godly nation. But at the same time, they are looking back at the mother country with interest. I mean, they are getting more distant, but but also it's part of a narrative to do with godliness. And they can't avoid being drawn into what's happening in England. And I thought without that, you don't get a sort of, as it were, the third dimension of the settlements here. And of course, everybody in England was very pro having Protestant colonies in America to stop the march of the Spanish Empire, because this is all part of the terrible Pope and his ally, the Spanish Empire. And they, they want to put a stop to that. And, and that's one of the reasons people invest even in a separatist colony like Plymouth, because they feel this is going to be a bulwark against the Pope. And I think without knowing that, without having a sort of international dimension, you lose something. Because I am, as I said, looking at it from a European and English perspective. But that dimension to me is important. And I think you want to sort of have the whole picture. And that's really what I was trying to do.
1: You're enjoying my Thanksgiving week chat with Rebecca Fraser, and she's giving us a peek into her book, The Mayflower, The Families, the Voyage, and the Founding of America. You can visit her on Twitter at Author. That last name is spelled F-R-A-S-E-R. Judith H. Swan, former Governor General of the General Society of Mayflower Descendants, writes of the Mayflower, quote, The author puts the reader into the period with a front row seat as the story unfolds. Fraser's attention to historical detail is excellent and enhances this riveting book. And she put an exclamation point there at the end of the quote, which I thought really showed the enthusiasm she had for it. Regular listeners know that my wife runs her genealogy business out of historyauthor.com. And you mentioned earlier in our chat that she's descended from Richard and Elizabeth Warren, who are on the manifest here and appear in your book, The Mayflower the descendants of those original pilgrims are often quite dedicated. That's a very select group of people. So I wondered, as an author following these historical facts, as somebody... You've mentioned the Pilgrim Hall Museum there, where I guess for this Thanksgiving, I should send my wife up there to get her 17-great-grandmother or whatever (laughs) she is there, her tablecloth you mentioned, to lay out on our Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the way I spill? Are you kidding? I destroy a precious Historical artifact. Descendants are protective of their ancestors. They really are passionate. They know so much, never mind just being passionate, but they they will call you out if you have a historical fact that they feel is wrong. So I wonder, how did you deal with that, writing history about people so long ago and knowing there might be some myths or legends that some of the descendants just didn't want to give up?
2: to all these genealogical societies like the General Society of Mayflower Descendants, actually, they publish huge amounts of material, which isn't necessarily flattering to their ancestors. I mean, they are dedicated unearthers of fact. And and in fact, the Mayflower Descendant uh, magazine was fantastically important to me in terms of tracking down wills and that sort of thing. But of course, you're right to say they can be very dedicated. In, in fact, um, there was no more dedicated a member of the Mayflower families than the poet Longfellow, because he was descended from Priscilla Mullins and John Alden. And as your listeners will know, one of his most famous poems was The Courtship of Miles Standish. So he absolutely promoted his family. And I was very interested reading The Courtship of Miles Standish there's a a line or two in which he writes that the pilgrims are very panicky as the last sight of the Mayflower runs the bend back to England. And he says, sun illumined and white on the eastern verge of the ocean gleamed the departing sail like a marble slab in a graveyard, buried beneath it lay forever, all hope of escaping. And I thought, was this family law? Is this something which was passed down and everyone was sort of worried when the Mayflower went or was it just poetic license? So um, I was sort of amused when I discovered that he was a descendant. And I think most people are really interested in the truth, what lies beneath But it's only really since I've got to America recently that I've met descendants of these families. I mean, in fact, there's the wonderful Alden house in Duxbury where I met some Aldens. Hmm. So that was very exciting this week.
1: It's nice to be able to connect with people and give them this story and know that they're going to pick up your book and it's something you don't often get when you're writing historical books where somebody could pick it up and you find readers that not only is it just as alive, the people that are long dead as they are to you as an author, but they really feel that way. They feel so invested. They have this connection to them to help keep them alive. Also nice that hopefully they'll share the book with people, You start and end the Mayflower with King Philip's War, the English fighting with their former allies and their former benefactors and friends, the Wampanoag tribe. This is, again, we don't define interactions between nations on just the bad or good time as much as we might just want to... And the whole thing fade to black after they have their pumpkin pie, which I guess they <laughs> wouldn't have had at the first Thanksgiving. But this is the thing. You have a mountain of historical data about those interactions, friendships, falling outs, betrayals, revenge. You fit those into the story that you wanted to tell. So tell us a little bit about King Philip. Who was he?
2: Um. Well, he's Massasoit. Second son. So Massasoit has two sons. Well, you may have had more, but the two ones we know about are Wamfuta and Metacom. And then Massasoit asks that they be given English names, and they are given Alexander and Philip. I think it is really true that peace does persist basically between Plymouth and Wampanoag for about 40 years, and that's why, while all the characters who were there at the beginning are alive, so that's. Massasoit, William Bradford, the early pilgrims are alive, and Massasoit, a peace prevails. And then in 1660, Massasoit vanishes from the records and the, all the old pilgrims are dead. And I think the new generation are much less interested in the Native Americans. And they're much more interested in this incredibly exciting thing, which is that trade is taking off everywhere. And not that the Native Americans are not interested in it, but they're the focus is different. And I think that I don't want to single out Josiah Winslow for obloquy, because I think a lot of people did feel that, you know, Native Americans were standing in the way of what they regarded as progress. Although, in fact, Philip goes to see um, John Elliott, who has set up the Indian College at Harvard for Native Americans, to try and get him to send someone who will teach his people to read. So he is interested in progress too. But I think Philip is a very, very dynamic person. He's also angry. Clearly, Massasoit was a very mellow, fun person. And I think Philip has seen the English cause the head of the Narragansetts to be executed, Mi And that's a major moment after the Peacod War. And after that things really start to degenerate. That's sort of 1637, but as all scholars say, it's a short war, but it casts an enormously long shadow. And then everyone starts, the Native Americans begin to distrust the English and vice versa. So things start to sort of ratchet up. It's chicken and egg who's responsible, really. And I think that Philip, I think you have to remember these Native American leaders really are royalty in their own country. One of the reasons the Narragansetts were so kindly to Roger Williams is they'd been here for thousands of years. Their word was law. It never occurred to them they were really going to be threatened by the English. And I think Massasoit has sold a lot of land in Plymouth, increasing amount of land, which his sons try and reverse because they feel it's actually getting up to their own land on Mount Hope, I think Philip gets angrier and angrier. And I think he thinks it's now or never. And also, Plymouth is now trying to start to impose its own laws on the Wampanoags. And whereas the founder of the Scrooby Church, the the person who set the Mayflower sailing is John Robinson. And he had sent this letter to his flock in Plymouth saying, you are not magistrates over the Indians. But by the 1660s and 70s, they have forgotten this. And I think Philip is a proud man, brilliant warrior, and he just thinks, go for it. So I think one must give him his due, you know, and again, it's context.
1: Why that choice to use that as bookend? Start, then go back in time, and then come back to King Philip's war?
2: Well, I think it is quite a sad thing. I think when you read King Philip's words or Metacom's words, just before the outbreak of the war in 1675, which had taken down by um John Easton, who's the sort of a deputy governor on Rhode Island. And when Philip says, you know, my father was the first to do good to the English and his father was a great man and the English were like little children whom his father had protected from other Indians. He gave them corn and showed them how to plant and let them have a hundred times more land than now the king had for his own people. I think that is a sad thing to read and I thought it was important that that everyone should have a sort of voice in this narrative. The fact is what happens is people become more interested, so many people arrive and really the numbers swamp the Native Americans and they are also being attacked by plague. And I think that it is a melancholy thing to read, you know. But on, on the other hand, the beginning has been wonderful. And of course it's just one Thing And I think then relations do go back. And in fact, there are many colonists who do have very good relations with the Native Americans. But it was, you know, it's a narrative arc, if you like, and just compare the sort of happy days of the beginning and then the less happy days. But I think Philip himself was a very difficult character. And I think Roger Williams, who maintained this great, great friendship with the Narragansetts, thought that Philip behaved badly, was ungrateful So I think it's important in history to provide lots of different points of view. Otherwise, you must have a sort of balanced look. I wanted to show that all parties behave well. They can also behave badly, whoever they are, whether they're Native Americans, English, whatever. But I have to say, I think this book, I couldn't really have written it were it not for the internet because it's so difficult to gather contemporary accounts, 17th century accounts, but thanks to... um, things like archive.org, you can read digitized 17th century, 18th century, 19th century books. So you can look up what people said about Philip at the time, whether it's William Hubbard saying Josiah Winslow dragged Philip's elder brother by his hair. You can see all that for yourself. So you're not having to rely on later accounts or 19th century historians or whatever. So I think it's very important as everyone knows to get back to the primary sources, and through the internet you can.
1: You also mentioned the Mayflower Compact here in the Mayflower. I wanted to ask you briefly what debt that we owe as citizens of modern democracies where we have some freedom the Mayflower Compact, people have heard of it, I'm sure. But for myself, I realized I'm, I'm picturing a makeup compact, which is strange. <laughs> so I'm thinking, wait a minute, I had to really think when I saw it of exactly what, oh, it's not the Magna Carta. I had to really go back into my memory to think of what it is and what debt we owe these people.
2: Well, I think it is revolutionary, the Mayflower Compact it probably really is the first document of consensual government made without a monarch being involved in the history of Western democracy. It's in advance of its time, but it's sort of accidental. You know, they've got to make a compact with each other because all these sort of rather disparate people are on the ship. So it's almost by chance. And of course, at the time, it's not something people really knew about. But I think in a way, you could argue that all of the New England colonies are having to take decisions without reference to a monarchical government. They are sort of advances in the history of democracy in themselves. But it's certainly true that particularly 19th-century constitutional historians, after the American republics been established, do see it as the birth of popular constitutional liberty and. In a way, yes, of course it is, but it then does become a tradition, but the traditions are sort of evolving geographically anyway, because all of these places are far from England. But of course, it means that there is already a sense of sort of representation. And I mean, in fact, Edward Winslow, again, you know, he writes one of the reasons to stop people interfering in New England is is he actually says if the Parliaments of England should impose laws upon us having no budgets in their House of Commons nor capable of a summons by reason of the vast distance of the ocean being 3,000 miles from London, we would lose the liberty and freedom I conceived of English indeed. And shouts and corporations make and consent to laws in England, but we are not opposed what they conceive may be helpful to them. But this liberty we are not capable of by reason of distance. So I think... If you're governing yourself, you are creating a democratic system. And in fact, in Plymouth, there was no property qualification for 40 years, which is absolutely incredible, particularly if you compare it to England, in that you don't get that for 250 years in old England. So I can see why historians of the new American public think the Mayflower Compact has a whisper of the 1776 Declaration of Independence, And I think it is tremendously important, but it is sort of almost accidental. And who knows how much people knew about the Mayfow Compact immediately. I mean, the document has actually been lost. Our only knowledge of it is through Bradford's history. I mean, it's written down in his history. And of course, Bradford's history isn't really published in its entirety until the mid-19th century because original manuscript is actually stolen by the British (laughs) during the War of 1812. So I think the thought is there that you have to, uh, you know, it is is a very important moment in democracy, but rather like the Meshire itself, I'm not sure how much do they appreciate what they're doing is revolutionary. It is revolutionary, but probably they're not really aware of that. But things grow out of it. That's the thing about a tradition, isn't it?
1: You never know what's going to happen. We mentioned before just living your life, doing something as simple as going for freedom and a better life can change the world. The ripples of it slowly come out. Other people pick up on it. Yes. Okay, we have sighted land, and we are now near the end of our journey. Since we talked about the international scope of this story, I'll leave it to listeners to imagine their own shore, whether it's the shore of the Native Americans' homeland here in North America or whether it's the shore of England. But the important thing is to take the journey, to take it and enjoy this book I do have one final question for you, and that's, as we here in the United States look forward to Thanksgiving this week, as our Canadian neighbors look to their celebration next October, what do you hope readers of the Mayflower will think the next time they sit down to that Thanksgiving feast about the voyage, about the very real people who made it, and maybe when they see that little cardboard cutout of a pilgrim decorating a store window What do you want them to think back? What do you want them to maybe nudge the person with them or lean down and tell a child that is the truth that they learned here in your book?
2: Oh, I think, you know, Abraham Lincoln was right to make Thanksgiving a new national holiday in 1863 as a a way of reconciliation, and because I think it's no myth that there genuinely was a wonderful relationship which you can truly celebrate in Thanksgiving. And there are many descriptions of many feasts between the pilgrims and the Native Americans. So that's celebrating a historic truth.
1: Well, Rebecca Fraser, author of The Mayflower, thank you so much for introducing us to so many pilgrims and Native people in your book. I really enjoyed getting this book. I picked it up and I said, oh boy, it's a little close to Thanksgiving. Will I be able to finish it in time? But not only did I tear right through it, but you were kind enough to make time for me. We'll be able to turn this around fast for listeners, and they can enjoy it as well. I wish everybody who reads it to have that same experience, really enjoy it, and really get a full picture, hear the voice through you of the pilgrim speaking to us across the ocean and across the centuries. Best of luck to you with the Mayflower. I wish you a happy Thanksgiving here from North America, and I hope you have great success as you continue to spread the word about these amazing people.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Again, the book is The Mayflower, The Families, The Voyage, and The Founding of America. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or as you start to load up for holiday shopping, navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. Say you want to buy some stocking stuffers, well, you go to HistoryAuthor.com, we take it, Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart and you don't have to deal with any of those Black Friday crowds. Yes, for just those few extra clicks of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Or to use a metaphor from today's book, you'll put some wind in our sails. My sincere thanks to Rebecca Fraser for joining us and for bringing us inside the Mayflower, the native tribes, and the Plymouth Colony, for looks at the real history Beyond the Legends. Check out our guest at R. Fraser Author on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com/slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a happy Thanksgiving. We
0: still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the East Coast. Side, west, sign things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore